0: In October 2020, like many other people with an interest in dance, I was watching a YouTube video. It was posted by the American ballerina Katherine Morgan, and in it she described in some detail why earlier that year she had left Miami City Ballet where she was a soloist. It must have been hard for her to film. It was certainly upsetting to hear. I'm David Jays and this is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. Catherine Morgan is our guest today and we may cover some challenging subject matter. Catherine's journey through dance has clearly brought her joy, but she has also had to deal with issues around physical and mental health, and especially around body image. She has a large and devoted following on YouTube and social media and she speaks with rare honesty about her experiences. Miami City Ballet hasn't publicly addressed Catherine's story, but she has prompted a wider discussion of the culture of professional ballet, its attitude to body image and what needs to change. Catherine has been at the forefront of that conversation. Let's hear from her now. Catherine Morgan, welcome to Why Dance Matters.
1: Oh, thank you, David. I'm so honoured to be here.
0: You have been sharing glimpses into your, your life as a professional dancer and your own journey for years now. But the ballet world is one that holds its secrets quite close. I wonder when you started to share things with a wider public, was it difficult to <laughs> make that leap into full disclosure?
1: Oh, absolutely. And a lot of people thought I was crazy and they thought, oh, this isn't going to work. You're going to ruin the ballet world. You're going to ruin the magic. And I just remember thinking, no, I need to do this. I need to sort of bring ballet to everybody I need to kind of open the curtain literally and show things and and tell it like it is and just say what it really takes because I think ballet for a long time has this stereotype of being unachievable unattainable non-relatable and so I had a lot of a lot of doubters a lot of haters even my own parents were like you might want to think about this before you do it (laughs) really absolutely yes
0: oh wow (laughs) what do they think now because they've had to hear you talk about a lot of difficult stuff, presumably have horrible stuff thrown back at you, as anyone who goes yes, public oh, for sure. does. Do they feel very protective of you?
1: I think now they finally understand. I think it was through the pandemic when everybody was going to my YouTube channel and doing my classes and being able to have me, you know, as their role model. A lot of people go up to my parents and say, oh, she's just such a good role model. We're so honored that she does what she does I think they finally understand it now even my mom recently was like I get it (laughs) I absolutely get it um and so I think they're actually very proud of it I think my father especially loves the fact that I kind of make my own path and I'm not trying to fit in a mold so they're very very supportive
0: what do you think is the biggest misconceived notion that people have about
1: ballet It's almost this weird thing of they finally are understanding that ballet dancers are human beings too. We're actual people. When I show videos of real life or behind the scenes or daily class and rehearsal where we're laughing and giggling, it's almost like, oh, you guys are real people. Oh, you make mistakes too. I think, again, for a long time, everybody finds ballet or thinks of ballet as this perfect ethereal thing and the dancers are these either creature type, things or unattainable movie star in a way. And we're so glamorous, but actually we're just like everybody else. And I think to be relatable is a huge thing in today's world. And I think dancers just haven't been relatable in the past. And so, you know, anytime you can follow a dancer on social media or see their daily life, you kind of feel like, okay, they're like me. They're just a ballet dancer. So that's been a huge thing that I've seen through my YouTube channel.
0: And your father worked for the Air Force. Um, Yes. What was your childhood like and how did ballet get its hooks into you?
1: I started dancing as soon as I could walk. I was that child that anytime my parents had classical music playing, I was completely transfixed. I had no other hearing. I mean, my mom said that was the way she could take a shower and get ready in the morning when I was a baby. She said, I just put on the classical music radio and I had an hour to myself because you were just transfixed. And then when I started walking, I just wanted to become the music. Music was always the start for me. And my father, yes, went to the U.S. Naval Academy He's a graduate of the Naval Academy. He was in the Navy for a while. He left, and then he came back into the Air Force. So we actually moved around a lot before I was five. Once I was five years old, he opened his own dental practice. And so we finally settled in Alabama. But moving around and changing dance schools, I started dancing at a tiny little school when we were on the Air Force Base in North Dakota. And then I was at a smaller school in Alabama, and then I changed schools. So I kind of hopped around a lot. But ballet was the only thing I ever wanted to do. The story goes that when I was 18 months old, the Bolshoi Nutcracker was on television, and my parents showed me, oh, Katie, this is ballet. And I ran in the other room, and I had a teddy bear with a tutu on it. I took the tutu off the teddy bear, put it on me, came back in, and started dancing. And my mother was just sort of like, oh, boy. (laughs) What have we gotten into? Um, And that was it from day one. And they tried. They tried to put me in other things at school, other activities at school, but it just, ballet was the only thing that ever stuck. And it's still stuck.
0: Wow. What was it, do you think, that first hooked you?
1: I really do think it was the music. I remember my mom telling me the story that I said, Mommy, I want to be the music. I want to be the music. And I think that's, that's what always still inspires me about ballet. I had a really hard time enjoying and getting behind ballets that I just didn't enjoy the score of and it was just one of those things that I needed to be moved by the music in order to to dance to it and so that's why some composers with me I just don't understand or I don't register with I don't enjoy the ballet as much and so I think for me it's a form of expression but also how I can be the music and you become the music by being the visual of it and by dancing.
0: When you look back at your training ballet is such a rigorous career did it prepare you f- for that
1: you know it's interesting I had really good training growing up and I was always by the time I was five I was in a very serious ballet school yes I took extra classes at you know more competition jazz based studios but for me I had good training from the start and I had to be in a uniform from the start and so I was disciplined right away and we got to perform a lot, even as a young dancer. And so there was always this notion of working towards things or who's going to be cast in the role and you had to work hard to get the role. So for me, the discipline was just always a part of my life. Even in normal school, people couldn't understand why well, you always have your homework done on time and you just do it. And you know why? And it's just sort of ingrained in me because as dancers, we just do it. You're trained to do it. You're trained to work hard. You do all your tondus, So you do all your homework. So it was was always one of those things that I I never knew any differently. And so then getting into New York City Ballet at the age I did and having roles thrown at me, you know, oh, you're on tomorrow for so-and-so, it's your spot, but the other side, just reverse it, you'll be fine. It's just sort of like, okay. So (laughs) it was one of those things I never knew any differently, I think.
0: You mentioned your really quite jet-propelled start at, at New York City Ballet. You were quite early on dancing, very demanding prominent roles like you said being thrown in in the deep end and quite unfazed um but then your body began to behave strangely and you were diagnosed with a thyroid condition and an autoimmune disease which meant that you quite soon had to stop performing and focus on recovery and you were just 21 i think when all that was happening that must have been a lot how how on earth did you get through that
1: at first, I blamed myself. I thought it was my problem, my fault. I wasn't working hard enough. Because for those that don't know the story, I had recently at age 21, I got promoted to soloist. And we had just finished a full run of Sleeping Beauty where I had danced Aurora. And that's one of the most difficult ballets in the repertoire. And I was—I remember being exhausted through Aurora, but of course it's Sleeping Beauty, so you don't think anything about being tired. Of course you're gonna be tired. Spring season started and I just remember being, okay, Sleeping Beauty was a month ago. Why am I still tired? I could barely get through rehearsals. I started putting on weight for no reason. Peter Martins, who was ballet master in chief at the time, was doing a new ballet and we were in the studio with him six hours a day plus performances in the evening. And I just remember thinking, I'm not eating enough to put on this much weight this quickly. And I just remember my muscles giving out and just being so tired. And of course, as a dancer... Where it's all on you. I thought, okay, what am I not doing? Am I eating too much? Am I not working hard enough? What is the problem? And then the big one was my hair was starting to fall out, and it was just sort of like, okay, something isn't right. And I remember at the time I got through the season, but then the summer season came, and I just I couldn't get through the ballets. I couldn't fit in the costumes, and it was at a point where I was almost feeling like I was going to get injured if I kept pushing. So I talked to the ballet mistress and she's like, yeah, you might want to go see a doctor. This doesn't sound right. So I did. And that's when they first diagnosed me with the thyroid condition. The autoimmune diagnosis didn't come until about three years later because they didn't catch it right away. And so it was just an uphill battle for two years thinking that, okay, I'm on medication for this thyroid problem. Why isn't it working? But it was because we hadn't figured out that I had the autoimmune condition on top of it yet. And so it was It was a very rough situation. Being in a company like New York City Ballet, where the schedule is so demanding, it's basically like being on Broadway or the West End. You're just eight times a week, on all the time, rehearsing all day long. And I just, I couldn't get through it. I got to a point where I just thought, OK, it's me. It's me. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but it was because I was getting sick. Yeah.
0: It must also be very hard to hold on to the joy that you were talking about earlier when you're body is just battling so much stuff
1: oh absolutely I wanted nothing to do with ballet at the time I remember having an approach of doing what I needed to do to not lose my job I didn't want to be in company class I didn't want to be in rehearsals I remember switching my spot where I stood at the bar so I didn't have to look in the mirror at myself it was just like dread every time I walked in there simply because my body was betraying me and I just I didn't feel like myself i look in the mirror and I'd go that does not look like me it was a very rough situation.
0: How well are ballet companies equipped to deal with those kind of situations? I mean, it's clearly quite a, an unusual, thankfully, combination of circumstances. But in general, are major ballet companies sympathetic to people who are having physical and emotional struggles?
1: I think we're finally starting to see the awareness rising in ballet companies, this was back in 2010. And so at the time, absolutely not. And ballet is still very, you know, slow to change. We're starting to see it, but it's very slow to change. But in a ballet mentality in most companies has always been, well, if you can't do it, we have four other people in line who can. We have so many other people who want your spot. We have so many other people who can do the role. You're very much made to believe you are replaceable in a ballet company. And so it's always just been like, well, you can't do it. You're out of shape. That's your problem next. And so at the time, it was until I actually had a diagnosis, I do believe they thought I was just eating too much because I had gained so much weight. And then finally, once I had a label for it, once I had, oh, this is a note from my doctor showing you exactly what I have, then it was like, oh, okay. You know, so up until that point, it was really, you're very disposable.
0: And it's very hard to rebuild a career when you've fallen off that very, very stringent tightrope that is a ballet career. In the years following, how did you start to rebuild that?
1: Actually, it was YouTube. I, I stuck around New York City Ballet for another two years, trying to get back on stage. They were actually, after that initial little bump in the road, they were very supportive they kept giving me things to rehearse. They kept casting me in ballets. And I was the one going, nope, can't get through it. Can't fit in the costume. So I finally decided to leave. And I, for about three or four months, I did wallow on the sofa and just, what am I going to do? And it was finally my father that was like, okay, I've let you sit here for three months. What, what's next? During that time through the many, many, many doctor visits, because still at that point, I hadn't yet discovered it was an autoimmune condition. I started watching YouTube videos and I thought, well, you know, for all the yoga gurus and makeup people on here, there's no dancers. And the rumors had also started going around that I was fired, which was not true. I had left of my own accord. And so I thought, well, let me try this thing called YouTube. I'll get on there. I'll It'll help me stay relevant. I can tell my story. I can, you know, maybe create a little channel and see what happens with it and it was really youtube that kept me relevant and everybody started coming back to me oh there's Catherine Morgan she did fall off the face of the earth now she's back so i think it was youtube that really did help me come back to being somewhat relevant but nobody was doing it at the time and so i know everybody was just like ugh what is she doing what is this thing and why is she doing this now you know 7 8 years later now it's like oh the channel you've built we get it now so, <laughs> but it was really youtube that helped
0: it's interesting because For a lot of people, and especially for young women, social media is a very mixed blessing. You're left vulnerable to a lot of random reaction and and hostility. But for you, it feels as if it's been pretty much an unmixed positive engagement.
1: I say to people all the time, I'm very glad we didn't have social media when I was a student because I would have, it would not have helped me a lot. I would have gotten very caught up in looking at other dancers and what they were posting and their lines and this and that. But for me, it's I think it's because I was one of the first dancers on YouTube, if not the first professional dancer on YouTube, because I was the pioneer that it's it has been nothing but positive. I do get hate comments occasionally. But actually, it's very rare for me. I have a very supportive group of followers. I have a very positive community. And I just kind of keep it that way. I, I try not to cause too much drama. I try and be positive and inclusive. I have caused some drama here and there unintentionally. But, you know, I think it's because I just, I try not to even acknowledge the hate. I don't stir the pot. Once I see the hate comments, I kind of just leave them. But it really has been a positive thing for me.
0: Because of the profile that you'd built through your channel, in 2019, when Miami City Ballet hired you as a soloist, it was a big deal. There was a lot of publicity around that and a lot of expectation because it was your return to a major company and a chance to dance those really signature roles. But it did sour quite quickly. And I'm wondering, what was the mismatch there? Was it your expectations? Was it their expectations? Why didn't that fit as well as it should have done?
1: It was probably on both sides. I think I was under the assumption that, you know, because I was told when I auditioned that, oh, you look beautiful. Your body looks great. I know your story. I've heard your story. We love what you stand for. Your body looks great. So I was under the assumption that it was fine where it was. And that I could be that different dancer. And I was under the assumption that the ballet world had moved further along than it had. I also think they were under the assumption that I was going to come back. We're going to hire you as is. And you're going to then get in better shape. I did not understand that. That was not ever conveyed to me. But I think it was maybe a silent understanding that they thought it was going to be conveyed to me. And so when I didn't, quote, get in better shape or didn't get smaller or didn't you know, look back like my 17-year-old self, that's when it went sour. And I think that's the other problem is that because I had such a huge career early on in New York City Ballet, where I was the 17-year-old Juliet and the 19-year-old Sugar Plum, that it was assumed that my body would get back to looking as it did when I was 17 and 19 and a 20-year-old Aurora. And it was just never going to be that, sick or not. I was hired at 31 into Miami city ballet, I was never going to look like I did at 17, but I think there was the expectation of, Oh, she can look like that again. And so when I didn't, that's when it went South. I was pulled from pretty much every role, not given performances, some performances I was taken out two days before. It just was not a good situation. And I think it was probably miscommunication on both sides. I was under the assumption that I was fine where I was. And they were under the assumption that she looks fine. We want her to look better.
0: Like a lot of people, of course, I've seen your video about your time in Miami after you left the company when you talk about that. It is very upsetting to listen to you detail all of that experience of, as you say, being pulled out of roles, being ignored in rehearsals, having roles taken away from you in front of the rest of the company in rehearsal. And one of the things that I found really distressing wasn't just what was said to you, but how it was said. It felt like quite a routine level of disrespect. And you were, as you say, you are in your 30s. You're an adult. You're a very experienced professional. You're a colleague who should have been treated with respect. But you're being spoken to like a child. Is that unusual, do you think?
1: Oh, not at all. It's very common in ballet companies. I've heard when I rehearse principal roles, the core dancers were referred to as the kids. The kids will be here and you'll come and I'm going, some of these core dancers are like 10 years older than me, because I was, you know, 18 at the time and they were 28, 30. And I'm thinking the core is being referred to as the kids. It just did never sit right with me. And I think that is a lot of the mentality in many ballet companies is this thing of you must still be an eager 18-year-old trying to vie for a job even when you're in your 30s and 40s. I saw it, you know, some of the older dancers than me treated like that too. So it was, yeah, you're, again, it goes back to that thought of you are replaceable. You're replaceable. If you're not young and eager enough and don't work hard enough, we have four other people who will. That's how a lot of ballet companies run is that the ones who are young and eager and we can treat like 18-year-olds They're going to be the ones that we can control and they'll work hard for us and they'll be the ones promoted. So it is a very young, you're treated like a child. And it's, it's everywhere because even the core is referred to as kids.
0: And of course, despite decades of discussion really around this, Ballet still polices and scrutinises its dancers' bodies. What does that do to a dancer's head? And how can you kind of navigate that and come through unscathed?
1: It's very difficult to, I would say pretty much every ballet dancer has something about their body they don't like, or has some experience of hearing you're too fat, you're too thin, you're too short, your legs are too short, your torso is too short, your torso is too long. Like it's just, there's something. And a lot of the, you know, the people who defend ballet's aesthetic will say, well, it's sort of the same thing as a basketball player having to be tall. And it is, but it isn't. Because oftentimes your weight is criticized. A lot of ballet dancers, thankfully I never had this happen, but a lot of ballet dancers are told, look at your back fat, look at your thighs, your thighs are too big, your thighs are so large you can't even get your legs in fifth position. And it's very difficult to come out of that without some sort of mental struggle or eating disorder, or, you know, oh, maybe if I just ate salad today and I could lose five pounds in a week and fit in that costume better and I've heard people say to dancers as well, oh, that was great. You know, if you lost five pounds, it'd be even better. It's just one of those things that I don't know even how this started because if you go back and look at the very, very early dancers like Anna Pavlova, they were never that thin. So we've kind of switched over into this, you have to look like a, a prepubescent child in order to have the proper lines in ballet. And that's one of the hard things about being a woman too, is so many of us looked, quote, perfect when we were 14 15 16 and then suddenly you go through puberty you go through these natural changes that are supposed to happen and suddenly it's like "Mm," you know now you're too big and it's like I'm just becoming a woman and yet you want me to fight against that and so it's a very very worrisome issue in the ballet world
0: and it's very dismissive as well of not just the adult body but also the adult mind I mean as you're older, you're bringing more artistry, you're bringing more emotional maturity, but it's almost as if those aren't the qualities that companies are valuing.
1: Right. And I remember even my mom, who at the time, she was just trying to help me, but she, which she has since apologized for, she didn't understand what it did to me mentally. She would always say, you know, Katie, the first impression is when you walk in that room, and if you're not thin enough, they're not going to look at you. That was ingrained in me, like, oh, yeah, she's Right and she was, you know, she is right. Sometimes they can't even look past the body to see you actually dance at auditions in a company. Oh, this is our costume. You know, they only fit these sizes. We can't make new ones because it's not in the budget. So you can't be in the role. Many I've seen dancers as well told that they don't have legs for a tutu. Well, you don't have tutu legs, so you can't be in a tutu. And it's just sort of like, really? <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's everywhere. The things I've heard, and that is why I knew I wasn't crazy. When I did that video, I initially had a different version of it that was very mild. That was just like, yes, um, my body didn't hold up and I didn't fit the aesthetic and that was going to be it. But then I realized that doesn't help anybody. Like somebody finally needs to be the one to call it out. And the amount of stories I got that were far worse than mine from current professionals, ex-professionals, students. I had some women write to me, oh, I'm 55 years old and I, I developed an eating disorder in ballet at 12 and I still deal with it. I mean, the amount of stories I heard after I spoke out was alarming and just depressing. And so that's when I knew, okay, this is not something I made up. This is not something that I just... You know, I'm complaining about this is a genuine problem across the board.
0: In one of your more recent videos about body image, I think you say there are a lot of unhappy dancers in companies. <laughs> it feels quite pervasive.
1: Oh, there's so many unhappy dancers. And it's just hearing again, hearing the stories, I'm going. We all started ballet because we love it. We all started to dance and wanted to be a dancer because it was our genuine joy in life. Nobody becomes a ballet dancer to be rich or to have a big house or you know I want to be famous because ballet dancers are not famous compared to athletes and movie stars and all that. only the very, very top ballerinas and male dancers and companies get quote fame and so We started because we love it, not because of anything else. And so then to see all these professionals who are just miserable is so unhappy. I don't know if anybody has really stopped to even think about it or go, huh, I wonder why this is this way. Well, how did we get like this? How did the ballet world get like this? It's just sort of what it is. Well, you have to be thin, even if a dancer lived it and has applied it to their own employees or dancers. It's simply because that's all they know.
0: All the time when you were putting up with what sounds like a a very negative and very damaging situation, and I suppose we should say that, as I understand it, Miami City Ballet hasn't, responded to your account or to other people's accounts of of life within the company. Through all of that, were you able to also find moments of satisfaction in dancing, pleasure, joy? Was that still something you could hold on to?
1: Yes, the four performances I actually did with them, I did three performances of Balanchine's Slaughter on 10th Avenue and one performance of I'm Old Fashioned by Jerome Robbins. I thoroughly enjoyed them. Slaughter was some of the best time I've ever had on stage. It was so much fun. And so there's still that element of finding joy in it. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep doing it. I think that's why so many dancers stick around. That's why so many dancers are in a bad situation or unhappy, yet are still dancing because of those very few moments on stage of how amazing those moments are. And that's why we do it. And you're reminded okay, this is why I'm putting up with all of this because the joy you feel on stage.
0: Does it only work if you're on stage? Can you get that same joy in the studio? Can you get that same joy for yourself? Or is there something about everything coming together in front of an audience that pushes things to a different level?
1: You know, I didn't used to think you could find it in the studio. I absolutely was like, oh, no, 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 I live for the stage. But now in shooting my YouTube videos, when I'll do a variation for YouTube or I'll film a little music video type thing for YouTube, I still find the same joy I have on stage. There is nothing like getting the audience feedback, but sometimes for me in the studio, doing it just for myself and not worrying about pleasing an audience, I actually dance better and I'm happier than trying to be on stage and knowing the audience is there and they paid for this and I have to be perfect and da da. And so I actually find just as much joy in the studio now. That took me a long time to find. And so many dancers, that's not a thing for them. It, it takes a long time to be able to enjoy every time you dance as opposed to just the moments on stage.
0: Of course, you've now been teaching for quite a long time, often through videos, I think in real life as well. Yes. What is the one thing that teachers could do to avoid some of the situations, some of the turmoil that you've had to experience to, to sort of break those patterns that seem to get set so early?
1: I think it's not what you say, but how you say it. I think we need to get rid of the term, why are you? Why are you not pointing your feet? What? Well, why don't you rephrase it and say, you know, oh, make sure you remember to point your feet. Why are you not in line? Why are you da-da-da? And it's, it's that combative just aggressive thing that you can say exactly the same thing, just in a more encouraging, positive way. Because I remember the teachers with me who were like, why are you da, 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 da," or you can't, blah, 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 that I actually did not improve in those classes. It was the teachers who were encouraging, you know, you should try it like this, or why don't you do this? And that was good. Now try this. That's when I actually improved. So this whole thing of like screaming at students, in my opinion, doesn't actually work. And it might work just for a very, very short time because you're scaring them, but you're actually just damaging them. And they're going to feel like they're failures to be quite frank. And then it's all going to go out the window and it's just going to spiral out of control. So when I teach, I really try and go at it from a positive thing. Even if I'm giving a correction, I'll find the positive and then say the negative. Okay. That was good. Now try this or you know, let's try it this way or, oh, let's remember to da, 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 And if, you know what, if you use that muscle, this turn will go better instead of why aren't you using that muscle? So it's just how you approach it. I think for me, what I love about teaching is not so much the teaching, the ballet aspect is the mentoring aspect. I like students to walk out of my class happier than when they came in. I want them to relax and enjoy dancing in my class. I don't want to have that fear-based tactic with the teacher in front of the room. I think that has to go in the ballet world. This sort of hierarchy of the teacher and we have to stand there and we be scared by the person in the front of the room. I don't think that does any good. And so it's just how you approach it. And for me it's the mentoring side of teaching that I love.
0: And for a lot of people, I'm sure for a lot of RAD teachers who who might be listening to this, they will be perhaps the most significant adult in a student's lives, who isn't a member of the family, who isn't a member of their regular school, who is nonetheless exactly that mentor role model figure.
1: You know, I was very fortunate and had a wonderful childhood and wonderful parents. But what a lot of teachers don't realise is that they don't know what's going on at home. The student might be using ballet as the only positive thing in their life. That might be their outlet. That might be their... You know, safe space. Their parents might be fighting. Their parents might be abusive. They might be in an awful financial situation. They might be, you know, the parents might be divorced. You you never know what's happening at home. And so when that student comes into your classroom, it might be the highlight of their day. And so you want to be that person that they feel safe with. You want to be the person that they want to please and and improve, but also know that you have their back. And you are going to support them as a person and not just a dancer, because you have no idea what happens beyond the ballet school doors.
0: And what comes next for you, Catherine? Because in the past, you've spoken about perhaps forming a small company that would tour and perform, but also teach and link up with local schools. Is that still the dream?
1: Absolutely. We are, you know, the pandemic kind of slowed that process down. That's still in the works. I still teach. I'm actually still dancing. I have a couple galas here and there, guest performances. So I, it's one of those things that I'm kind of both a freelance dancer, but also trying to form my own company in terms of touring, performing, teaching, offering different classes. I also love teaching adults. We have a lot of things in adult, for adults in the works. We're working on my own summer intensive, adult weekends and workshops. So I kind of have a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. I also judge for the Youth America Grand Prix Valley competition. I love doing those weekends. I just did three in a row this past month, again, for that mentor side of things. I'm one of those people that I, it, not being in a ballet company works well for me because I'm able to dance and do everything else.
0: Yes. Yeah. And when you're judging, when you're mentoring, you must recognize sometimes that terrified look in someone's eyes when they're feeling that they're being asked to meet impossible standards and, and failing them. How do you help talk them down?
1: It's funny because Justin, I was teaching yesterday for Youth America Grand Prix. Masterclasses are part of the weekend. And I was teaching the 14-year-olds. And that's that tricky age where they're just starting to figure out whether they want to do this for a career or not. They might be going away to summer intensives. I see the 14-year-olds especially have that fear in their eyes. And I just remember yesterday, I saw this like perfection mentality. So I said to them, okay, go from the corner, two by two some sort of turn, make it up. PK turns, suit news, I don't care, do something. And they were flying across the room and just spinning like tops. And I just said, see what happens when you actually have fun when you dance? And it was sort of like a light bulb in there. They're like, oh, I'm like, yeah. So I try and make class like that too. I try and incorporate the mental aspects of ballet to prove to them that look, if you are enjoying what you're doing and get out of your own head, you actually dance better. And it's a very hard thing for them to, to learn and to apply, but we get there. And so I think for me, it's just reminding them of why they do this in the first place. You know, you're allowed to have fun. I say it in class all the time. You're allowed to have fun in ballet. And so once they do that, then they start flying across the room and turning and jumping and and they want to, you know, they race to the front of the room to do the next combination. And I'm like, that is a productive class for them, not the class where they're in the back feeling miserable, can't do anything. You know that's how I try and structure it for them. And they they love it. And so that's sort of for me the highlight of the weekend. I also try and do that with my comments when I'm judging. I try and give them positive things that they're great at. Oh, love your APOM all, love your expression, blah blah blah. And then I also say, why don't you try and da-da-da-da on this step? Or, you know, keep working on articulating your feet. I never put need to point feet. I always say keep working on articulating your point work. And it's just how you phrase it. I think it makes a huge difference for them.
0: You must have been tempted to walk away from ballet so often, Catherine, more than most people. But you've stayed. Many times. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, as we hear, you've stayed so committed, so passionate about it. So the final question, why does dance matter to you?
1: I think it's the same thing as it did when I was 18 months old. It's my form of expression. It's my form of feeling free. Um, I've never felt more like myself and free than when I'm dancing. I was a very shy kid growing up. And I was that child that would never say anything. And then I would get in the studio and my teacher would be like, where'd that come from? So for me, it's the expression. It's the music. It's my freedom. um, And it's just what I love to do. And it's something that... I love helping other people with because it's so many other people's passion as well and I just want to make sure they get the most out of it and they enjoy it as long as they can because you can't dance forever but you can teach and keep mentoring generations for the rest of your life for me it's just life
0: that's a beautiful place to end thank you so much Catherine it's just been a real pleasure to speak to you
1: oh thank you so much thank you for having me
0: As I suspected, our conversation with Catherine took us to some challenging places. Change isn't easy, even or especially for the people trying to lead that change. I'm really grateful that Catherine continues to have these conversations so that the next generation of students and dancers feels even more emboldened to speak up if things feel wrong. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Let me know what you think. I'm at Mr. David MrDavidJays on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters. You can explore its work via our show notes and there are links to Catherine's website where you'll find her very candid and wide-ranging videos. Our guest today was Catherine Morgan. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our producer is Sarah Lyons. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.